0: I don't know if you noticed, but uh, my wife's hair was doing that Dreamweaver effect again with that last (laughs) song. Um, I personally found it beautifully distracting and wonderful in that regard. So That's how we met. That's uh, the version of that. You'll have to ask me about that uh, at a later time. It has nothing to do with our message today. I just thought that was kind of neat. When I was a kid... Uh, We used to uh, play a game, and actually it's a game that's become something that we played as an adult, often as icebreakers. Um, And it's a game about uh, if you could ask anyone at any time, at any point in history a question, who would it be and what would you ask them? And so we used to do it. Yeah, I'd want to, you know, meet this fictional character when when I was a kid, right? But we we would play that game. And we still do that. A lot of times we'll have like an icebreaker moment when we're kind of getting to know people. We'll give them a chance to think about that and ask that question. So imagine that this morning. Imagine you had the power of time travel and could go to any point in history and speak to anyone. Who would it be? And what would be the one question you would ask them? Maybe it's a a famous person that you've always admired and and maybe they're still here because uh, they're putting content out today that you're really enjoying and you'd like to ask them one question or it's someone who shaped your life. You got one question to ask. What would it be? Maybe it would be what's your secret? What's your secret to writing your, this story? What's your secret to making that song? What's your secret of writing all the songs, of writing all the things, or, or something like that? How do you stay focused and encouraged in the tougher times? Maybe be something like that. Or maybe you'd want to meet a powerful leader, someone in, in politics or the military, someone who can shape how a city develops someone who can shape how a state develops or a country develops or the international community at large is developed. You get one question to ask them. What do you ask them? You might ask them, what's your view on this political issue? You might say, would you be interested in supporting this cause or plan that's that's personal to me that I think would be good for the city or for the state or the country or the international community or maybe you'd say why don't you support my plan or my idea on this particular topic why don't you do that but this is church right and because it's church you may have a different person that you'd maybe want to go talk to but let's say the person that you wanted to go speak to was jesus and I know that in prayer, we can talk to Jesus because he is alive. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Uh, he is inter- the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. We can talk to him in prayer. But imagine, just again, because it's church, that you chose Jesus and to go back in time and talk to him while he was here during his earthly ministry. While he was here on earth. Now, he's someone who can shape all of creation and all of eternity, and you get one question to ask him. What's the question that you'd ask? What would it be? If we had time, I would love for you to discuss. Uh, that type of a question. I'd love for you to sit with someone and to say, here's the question that I would ask. And if we had time, I would get you to uh, type your answer in chat to say, this is the question that I would ask Jesus. This is the thing that I'd want to do. And it might be things like, why didn't you do this thing that I asked you to do? Why didn't you answer this prayer with a yes? Why did you say no or why did you say nothing? You might ask him something like that. But I honestly think there's a better question that you can ask Jesus. As a matter of fact, I think there's only two categories of questions that you ask the Lord of all creation. And as a matter of fact, I think you may word it differently. But I think there's only two categories of questions of things that you can ask him. And the first is this. What are you up to? What are you doing? Why aren't you doing this? That sort of thing. But the other question, I think, has a lot more ramifications for us as people. And that is the question, how are we doing? How am I doing in relationship to you? How am I doing? The first question talks about, God, what are you up to? What is the will that you are trying to accomplish right now? And what is it that you want me to do? But there's more of an important question that I think we need to ask and that is, how am I? How am I doing? How's my heart? How are our hearts together? You see, we've, uh, I get a chance to do a fair amount of premarital counseling in my job. I get a chance to meet with uh, couples who are experiencing some distress uh, in their marriage. And I have always found that as I've analyzed marriages, as I've looked at marriages over the years, the best ones always take time to check in with each other they check in and they ask how are we how are we doing how, how am i doing like how, how are we is am, am i am i assuming that we're okay when there's something that i need to be working on and they just there's just this check-in moment and you don't have to have those all the time with your spouse it's not every day but maybe there's some serious issues that you do need to work on all my point is is that What I have found in successful marriages is that a husband and wife come together and say, hey, are are we on the same page? How are we? How am I in this relationship? And we get to kind of hear the other person's point of view. We see both of these types of questions in scripture, right? There are times when the people of God are to ask God, what is your will for my life? What are the things that you have specifically put me on this planet for? And what am I to do? And those are good things. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Lead me in the way everlasting. Right? But the second one, I think, is actually more important. Because who we are with Jesus means more than what we do for Jesus. Who we are with Jesus means more than what we do for Jesus. Last week, we kind of continued in our little mini-series here in the Gospel of Mark uh, that we're calling Son of God. And we talked about, talking about what great Christians are. That great Christians serve those who are overlooked and unqualified, right? They, They are a servant to all. But last week, we also learned that great Christians don't just know a lot about God. They are desperately dependent on God. You see, it's easy to become numb to the things that cut us off from a quality relationship with God. And we must cut out whatever tempts us to sin because of the implications of eternity. We can miss out. We can think we're going to make it, and we're not if we play fast and loose with our sin. We must be desperately dependent on God. We learned not to mistake God's grace for God's permission. To cast off everything that hinders and run the race that God has put before us. Is that something you did this past week? If you were here last week and... um, we talked about being desperately dependent on God, and that everything in life and eternity hinges on that desperation. To enter the kingdom of God as a little child, someone who, if God doesn't do something, you can't make it. What changes did you make? What changes did I make? Was I desperately dependent on God this past week? Were you? So how are you doing? How are you doing with Jesus? It's the second question. The first one is, what are you doing, God? The second one, I think, is more important. How am I doing? I think it's the most important question that we can ask God. How am I doing? And there is a story in the Gospel of Mark that shows us what happens when we get right with God, what that desperate dependency looks like. If you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to turn with me to that story in Mark chapter 10, starting at the 17th verse. Because it's there we read this. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Because he had great wealth. I love this story. I love this story because that's a great question to ask. That's a how am I doing, Jesus, question that this rich young man asked him. And notice his level of desperation. He came running up to Jesus as Jesus was traveling on his way to Jerusalem. And he fell on his knees to ask Jesus this question. That's how desperate he was. And from the story, it's clear that this man is an upstanding citizen. He's a really good person. In fact, he's obeyed the commandments and this has given him a great reputation. It is really rare in Jesus's day to find someone who is honest with the scales, with the weights, when it came to bartering and measuring how much was being given out. And yet here this man can confidently say, and people backed this up by doing business with him more and more and more, that he has a great reputation. But what stands out to me are a couple of things. The one is the way Jesus responds. Jesus responds by not giving the normal way you, do, you give criticism. You'd give, here's some advice, here's some counseling that I do. He doesn't start off with the compliment sandwich. Do you know what the compliment sandwich is? I'm sorry, I know I'm breaking my own rule. I'm mentioning food before uh, in service before lunch. That's so mean, and I'm sorry. But a compliment sandwich is simply this. You tell something, someone something that they're doing well. Then you say, here's the advice, the, the criticism or the critique that needs, you need to change or you need to do better at. And then you end with another compliment, like a sandwich. You would take the meat of the subject, but then you'd have a couple of compliments on the side to make it a little bit more digestible. And Jesus ignores all of that good counseling advice that we were taught in seminary, that we were taught on how to help people swallow bad news. He just starts off by skipping the flattery. And not only that, did you notice that he actually tells the person, it doesn't matter how good you act. The good you do doesn't make you good at all. There's only one person who's good, and that's God. Now, what also stands out to me is not just the way that Jesus responds, but it's the way that the young man responds. Because he really is a good person. He has lived a good life. He has not broken any laws. But there's a difference between a person who hasn't broken a law and a person who is righteous. Those are two different statements. And you see, Jesus says nothing. About his inability to obey those commands of having quality relationships here on this earth. Instead, he points out the flaw in this man's faith. And the flaw was what? That he was rich on earth without being rich in heaven. Did you see that? Here, let's take a look at that second slide again, Emily, if we can. Uh, Where Jesus says, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure where? In heaven. So what that means is. That he was rich on earth. But he was not rich in eternity. And Jesus loves this man. He loves him and wants to help him move his wealth from earth To heaven and he says give up your wealth give it to the poor and follow me and this was hard because the man had a lot of wealth Jesus challenges him trust in me not in your money follow me don't follow your money and the man walks away so my question for you this morning, is how well is the man doing in his relationship with God? How is he doing? Is he doing thumbs up, he's doing great, or thumbs down? Jesus even says that it's hard to have money and follow him. He says it... Um, In verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. Why were they amazed? Because they viewed obedience as something that was rewarded through wealth. So the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel, the biggest animal they knew, to go through the eye of a needle, the smallest thing they knew, than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. That's how hard it is. And Jesus starts to meddle in our lives a little bit because don't we need money to live? Don't we need money to survive? Two things we need to see here. What you possess can turn around and possess you, the things you own can turn around and own you. In other words, Sometimes the good things from God become our God. We begin to idolize the blessings of God rather than worship God himself. And the other thing we need to realize is this, is not only that what you possess can turn around and possess you, but saying Jesus only on Sunday is one thing. And living Jesus only on Monday is another In other words, you set your priorities and then your priorities will set you. And when you combine both of these things together, it becomes almost impossible for the wealthy to be desperately dependent on following Jesus. There is a disadvantage to having wealth and the comforts of income and security that make it increasingly difficult for something that was already hard to do enter into the kingdom of God. It is hard for the wealthy to do it as well. So our solution is usually to do this. It's to say, I got this covered, Jesus. I'm not rich. Right? We say, well, I, I don't have enough. I'm not rich. I mean, just look at all the other people around me. They're rich. They have more than I do. But have you ever noticed that wealth is always contextual? To the culture in which you live, it's never actually only like a set, specific, hard and fast number. As a matter of fact, you can go to, I think it's MIT's website. They have a standard of living calculator that you can see from your own zip code how much it takes to live a comfortable life. And according to the statistics just here in Gates, New York, 40% of the people that live in the town of Gates itself live a very comfortable life. And they are more wealthy than many, many others. There's a huge wealth disparity. Something around the lines of half of the population makes about thirty-two dollars or $35,000 a year or less. And the rest of the population makes about 75000 or more. And there's not much in the middle. And you can guess which one of those numbers is the one that says, when you make this minimum amount, all of a sudden things begin to get more comfortable for you. However, if we were to take that $75,000 and try and live on that in New York City, would you be wealthy? No. If you were to take that $75,000 a year and you were to go and live in a bunch of mud huts in Africa, Would you be wealthy? Absolutely you would. It is always, always dependent on the cost of living. It is always contextual. So our defense of, well, no worries. I'm not rich, so this doesn't apply to me is a fallacy that we fool ourselves to think this type of treatment of our wealth It doesn't apply to us. But in the same way that the rich young man had a challenge with his wealth, and his wealth was getting in the way of following Jesus, we have to ask ourselves the same question. Are we struggling with our wealth, with our money, with our possessions, in following Jesus? How are you doing in following Jesus with your money? Will you surrender all your wealth if Jesus came to you and said, this is my plan for you, this is the one thing that is holding you back to trusting me only in faith, would you do that? Statistics tell us that Christians in America have a challenge with this. Christians are giving at 2.5% of their income. So whatever they get as an income, they give 2.5% of that, which is low. And it's even more shocking when you realize that in the Great Depression era, it was 3.3%. There is more money that has been generated and been created in the last 90 years And yet people are giving less and less. And Christians are leading the way. Only 3 to 5% of Americans who give to their local church do so through regular tithing. Giving 10%. Only 3 to 5% of people in their local church tithe. When surveyed, 17% of Americans state that they regularly tithe. So people are saying one thing and doing another. And get this, if your own personal wealth increases for, family making, for families making $75,000 a year or more, 1% of them give at least 10% in tithing. The number goes down as the wealth goes up. Now, we just recently finished a whole series uh, back in, I think, June, uh, where we talked about how money matters. What you say uh, you want to know what God says about money because your money's already saying a lot of things about you. That was the challenge that this rich young man had. And that is the challenge that many of us have here. That is a challenge that you may have. Can I trust God when I feel I don't have enough? And what if God comes and says, I want you to sacrifice more? Hear me well. It means that You may be rich in earthly things, but you lack in heavenly wealth. What you do with your money says a lot about your heart and your desperate dependence on Jesus. But as always, Jesus doesn't just leave us in the dirt and say, figure it out, folks, and walk away. Instead, He says, there is hope. It's challenging to be sure, but there is hope. And we see that in verse 26. The disciples were even more amazed at this teaching and said to each other, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. What is Jesus saying here? Well, first, we have to understand what the disciples are asking, and the disciples are asking, wait a minute, I thought having more, having more money, more wealth, meant more opportunity to do things for God. And Jesus is saying, that's impossible, that actually won't help you at all, because you cannot save yourself. You will always follow and make idols out of the blessings. You will always decide that this is what I want more. Than, and, and instead of, of Jesus, it will always happen with us. So God steps in and says there's something better if you give it all away. What you and I need to get is that uh, there's just this difficulty for people who have wealth, people like us. To know what dependence is, we don't want to feel dependent. But if we can get over that by realizing that we could never attain to the level of perfection God wanted us to attain to in the first place, and instead removes the bar altogether and says, trust in Jesus alone, Jesus only, then you begin to become rich in heaven. Now, the key is to remember that that's just the beginning of being rich in heaven. But that's where it starts is God's grace. The fact that the bar is so high and unattainable is not evidence that God doesn't care for you. It's that he makes the bar accessible to anyone No matter when they've lived, no matter what they've done, or no matter what has happened to them through one act of faith. Believing that the Son of God died to pay the penalty for your sins. And that God raised him from the dead. When you put your faith in him and choose to follow him, then you are given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He takes your sin and your shame and your punishment and gives you the perfection that you could never have. The righteousness, the right standing with God. And that is just the beginning. That's the beginning of our hope. So then we start to say, I will live and follow Jesus only. Not Jesus and. Jesus only. There's a reward for those who learn to live a Jesus-only life. And he goes on and says it in verse 28. Peter spoke up. I love Peter here. He's, he's my kind of guy. Peter spoke up and said, we have left everything to follow you. Now, church, is that true? Did Peter leave everything to follow Jesus? Absolutely, they did. They left their family. They left the family business to follow a teacher who said, come follow me. They gave away their primary relationships and they gave away their primary income to put Jesus first. Not job, not family. We've given everything to follow you. And Jesus continues and says, truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or fields, for me in the gospel, will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first What do people gain when they give up everything to follow Jesus? The family of Jesus. When you give up everything to follow Jesus, you gain the riches of heaven, which is the family of God. And you get a chance to experience that here. You got to remember that when you... When Peter first said this, there was no church. There was just a group of people who had varying degrees of commitments. One of the 12 would turn around and totally betray Jesus and turn him over to be crucified. So that's kind of a shaky start. You've kind of got the gamut of of who is going to actually be a part of this family. And you kind of wonder, if, if Peter had known up to that point when Jesus dies, I'm not sure that's a good reward. I think I'd rather have the money. I think I'd rather have that trade-off. But think of what happens in his lifetime. That after Jesus rises from the dead. And he ascends into heaven. And the Holy Spirit comes and empowers them at Pentecost. The church is born. And all of a sudden they go from this ragtag band of followers. To thousands of people. All from different nations. Within Peter's lifetime. He saw Jew and Gentile coming together under faith in Jesus Christ. It rewrote nationalities. It rewrote nations. It rewrote cultures because everyone was invited. We just take that for granted. But do you know where we see this today? We see the miracle of the church versus the miracle of technology. A miracle of technology has allowed more people to be more connected than ever before. And yet, the miracle of technology has also increased the level of anxiety and stress and loneliness like never before. We can go anywhere and not be with anyone at all. We can be in a crowd of hundreds or thousands and feel completely alone, but not when we follow Jesus only for our lives. Not when we follow Jesus only. When we follow Jesus only, we have a family no matter where we go. This is part of our story. This is part of my personal testimony. When my family moved here from Canada to the United States, we moved here to pastor a church. But there were some uh, difficulties with our visa status. So it was going to take some time for us to become permanent residents, which meant my wife couldn't work. And because we didn't have this permanent resident status, all of a sudden we were considered as, you know, a bit of a difficult investment if we wanted to get things like a mortgage or things like that. So our mortgage rate was double the normal going rate of a mortgage in New York State. We were paying more than 50 to 60% of our income just to have a home. But our church was there. Our church cared. Our church provided. Our church prayed. And it was amazing. I remember saying to Cristo one night, I don't know how people move across the country and not be a Christian. Because you can get to any place... And find a church of Jesus-following believers who welcome you. Not because you have anything to offer. Not because you have a skill set that you can provide. But because you are also a follower of Jesus. My hunch is that if you've been part of a church family for a long time, you've experienced this yourself. Where when your struggles become known... Your family rallies around you. We see this over and over and over. As I've engaged with God's family all around the world, I get the privilege of talking to international workers on a number of occasions. And I get a chance to uh, travel with Crosstalk Global and train uh, pastors how to preach and how to minister. I get a chance to do that. And everywhere I go, there is a church family that I can connect to, that I can be a part of. That's what I have gained. And that church, those people, they're going to be in heaven too. Guess what's not going to be in heaven? My yearly salary. It's what I do with my yearly salary that gives me wealth, treasure in heaven. When you give up everything for Jesus, when you decide I am going to live for Jesus only, you gain so much more than money. You gain family. You gain valuable ministry. Yes, it's a hard life. Yes, there's persecution from that. But you gain eternal life that has a packed homecoming party. And you get to be a part of that. When you give up everything to follow Jesus, you gain the family of Jesus. And that is worth saying, I'm going to be different. I'm not going to be the statistics that struggle with, here's my money. Here's my possessions. I am setting the priority now that Jesus comes first before my family before my finances, before my career, before my hobbies. It's the great news of communion is that you don't have to be a member of a church to participate in communion. You just have to be a follower of Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, then the best time for you to become one is right now. To realize that there's nothing you could do to earn God's forgiveness, but instead he offers it freely because Jesus decided to take the penalty for our sins on his shoulders and exchange that for his righteousness, a right relationship with God. That is powerful. So I'm going to invite uh, Krista and Will to come, and Krista is going to play while we play some music, while we distribute the elements. But as we do so, I want to ask uh, one of two questions. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, that I would encourage you to surrender your life to him. To surrender your life and say, I know I'm a sinner, but I believe Jesus died for my sins. And I believe God raised him from the dead and I choose to follow him all the rest of my days by putting my faith in In him alone, Jesus only. And if you've never done that, as we distribute the elements, then you can do that. But secondly, if you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, then I want to give you an opportunity to ask yourself this question as we distribute the elements. What do you need to surrender for a Jesus only life? Is it trusting Him with your resources? Is it trusting Him with your wealth? I happen to think that's the easiest place to start. But you can do it because of what you gain that's worth so much more than money. You gain a family, God's family, and you can trust Jesus to care and provide for you. Let's prepare for Communion. bow in prayer. Lord Jesus, the symbols that we have of your broken body, of your shed blood, is a reminder of the amazing grace that we have received, that you have given your all for us. And it is our privilege and our joy to surrender all to you, even the blessings that you give us. They pale in comparison to who you are and your great plan for us and for the world for all eternity. Holy Spirit, we continue to invite you to help us to know how we are doing. And Lord, if there is anything that we need to surrender to you, For a Jesus-only life, would you help us to do that? And Lord, if there is anyone here who has never surrendered their life to you in faith, but now is the time, would you give them the courage to accept the free gift of salvation that you offer? Give them the courage to confess that they are a sinner, but that they believe that Jesus died for their sins. And that you raised Jesus from the dead and it's that that you are trusting for their salvation, that they are trusting for their salvation. And may you help them to declare that in faith and begin to follow you. Your broken body, your shed blood, an act of sacrifice and surrender where you gave all for us and we celebrate that together. Amen. Just before we close, Maybe one way that you can begin to surrender is through the faith promise. The faith promise is a way to seek the Lord about how you might participate in the Great Commission. And faith means that you're trusting that God will provide, and the promise means that you will prioritize giving to Him first and His work first above all else. It is a chance for you to say, I will join you in this work, and I surrender even my wealth to you. We've started to receive these and collect them this Sunday. Uh, If you didn't get a chance to pray about that or you did not grab one of these physical brochures, then I want to encourage you to go to our website. We've got a link there. Uh, where you can download a PDF and print that off and consider what God might do through you to expand his family.